Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including supporting material, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash TBP. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS. Welcome to this Peer Voice activity on the identification, risk stratification, and management of patients with MASH in the primary care setting. This activity comprises a series of seven streaming episodes with Professor Mina Bansal. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Mina Bansal. I'm Professor of Medicine, Transplant Hepatologist, and Director of the Massel D. Mash Center of Excellence at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York. In this series of seven micro-episodes, I will discuss three different patient cases to help you identify, risk stratify, and manage in the primary care setting patients with metabolic dysfunction-associated steatohepatitis, or MASH, known until very recently as non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH. Welcome to the first episode, where I'll provide an overview on MASH and how to recognize and manage patients with MASH. Now, as just mentioned, the nomenclature for NAS has recently changed, and this really stems from two factors. One, the desire to have it as a diagnosis of inclusion rather than a diagnosis of exclusion, and to avoid stigmatizing terms in the nomenclature such as fatty or non-alcoholic. A large Delphi panel was, was uh, brought together and a consensus was formed on the term metabolic dysfunction associated steatotic liver disease or MASLD. So MASLD is the new NAFLD and MASH is the new NASH. Now MASLD is a leading cause of chronic liver disease globally. It encompasses a spectrum ranging from simple hepatic steatosis defined as having at least 5% of your hepatocytes filled with lipids to MASH, which is steatosis associated with inflammation and ballooning and progressive stages of fibrosis, with stage four being cirrhosis. Overall prevalence of MASLD is significantly and higher in men than women, but in women, it is currently the leading indication for liver transplantation. An estimated 25 to 32% of people worldwide currently have MASLD, and overall 2 to 6% have MASH. In those with diabetes, the prevalence of MASLD is higher at about 56%, and as high as 37% will have MASH, while in people with obesity, the prevalence of MASLD is about 75%, of whom an estimated 34% will have MASH. Therefore, the rise in MASLD and MASH has occurred really in tandem with the global obesity and diabetes epidemics. Researchers estimate that the prevalence of MASH could increase by over 50% by 2030, and MASH is now the fasting, fastest rising cause of hepatocellular carcinoma worldwide and is also the fastest rising indication for liver transplantation in the United States. Now, what are the drivers for MASLD or MASH? In addition to genetics and environmental factors, the adipose tissue's ability to store fat is overwhelmed when energy intake exceeds metabolic needs. This results in increased circulating free fatty acids 
At the same time, increased dietary intake of fructose leads to de novo lipogenesis, all of which culminate in an increased free fatty acid load in the hepatocyte, which results in ER stress, oxidant stress, inflammasome activation, and ultimately activation of stellate cells, which are the primary fibrogenic cell in chronic liver disease. Now, the most important thing to recognize is that fibrosis is the most important determinant of outcomes in MASLD. Once patients develop stage two fibrosis, they have a tenfold increase in liver-related mortality, which increases to 17-fold at stage three fibrosis. Similarly, all-cause mortality increases with progressive stages of fibrosis, as does cardiovascular mortality. And so it's important to be screening high-risk groups for the presence of MASLD, and those include those with prediabetes or diabetes, those with obesity or multiple cardiometabolic risk factors, those with hepatic steatosis on imaging or abnormal liver enzymes. Importantly, you want to rule out secondary causes. And then because the number one cause of death in patients uh, in those with MASLD is cardiovascular, you want to be very aggressive in managing comorbid conditions such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and atherogenic dyslipidemia. Of course, we want to try to prevent the development of cirrhosis and need to do risk stratification to understand whether patients are at low, intermediate, or high risk for liver fibrosis. To that end, a number of societies have come up with guidelines, and we'll refer to these when we do our specific case presentations. But the FIB4 calculator has emerged as really the leading first line of defense or rule out uh, index that can be used. It is using simple things like age, AST, ALT, and platelets, which are routine parameters that are found in patients without the additional need for costly testing. This FIB4 calculator can be used in patients and then determine whether they are low, intermediate, and high risk for the development of liver fibrosis. And again, we will refer to this in as we look at our cases more specifically. Cornerstone of treatment in patients with MASH is lifestyle changes, including weight loss and increased physical activity. You want to aggressively manage the comorbid conditions. There are currently no FDA-approved medications for the treatment of MASLD, so you're really trying to be very aggressive about managing the comorbid condition. There are, and that comes with the use of statins for cardiovascular disease. Both pioglitazone and vitamin E have been shown to improve mass resolution, but have not yet been shown to improve fibrosis. So it's an assumption that mass resolution will ultimately lead to fibrosis regression, but that has not been shown yet. GLP-1 agonists, as we'll talk about in future sessions, have also emerged as first-line therapy in these patients. And lastly, bariatric surgery has been shown to be associated with both fibrosis regression and improved clinical outcomes and should be considered inappropriate candidates. Thank you for watching and join us for our next episode where I'll discuss how to recognize MASH in individuals with type 2 diabetes. Hello, I'm Dr. Mina Bonsal. In this episode, I will discuss screening and diagnosis of MASH 
in individuals with type 2 diabetes. So meet Petra. She's a 64-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes. She presents with fatigue and malaise. She's had diabetes for about 20 years with associated dyslipidemia and hypertension. So she has at least three cardiometabolic risk factors. She doesn't smoke or drink and doesn't take any supplements or recreational drugs. Rarely exercises, but tries to eat right. And it's worth digging into that a little more to understand what eating right means to her. She lives with her spouse. She's on two diabetes medications, metformin and glipizide. She's on a statin, and she's on lisinopril and hydrochlorothiazide for hypertension. In terms of her current laboratory and clinical findings, she's normotensive at 128 over 70. She has a pulse rate of 72, and her BMI is 32. So she has class 1 obesity. In terms of her blood counts, she has a, pla- she has a platelet count of 186, Her ALT is 46 and AST is 54. It's important to recognize that even though the normal range on your laboratory reports might go as high as 4550 for ALT and AST, those are really based on the median values in a particular lab. And as our society has gotten more and more obese, those normal ranges have Uh, have marched upward. And therefore, from a hepatologist perspective, an ALT or AST greater than 25 in a woman is abnormal. Now, given that we talked about patients with type 2 diabetes being at high risk for MASLD and MASH, we want to then screen her for significant fibrosis, which, as I also mentioned, is the most important determinant of liver-related outcomes. So as per the recommendation, the most simple test to do or the first line of defense is to calculate the FIB4 score, which is just based on age, AST, ALT, and platelet count. And in Petra's case, her score is 2.74, which is considered high risk of having advanced fibrosis and cirrhosis. Thank you for watching. Join us at the next episode where I will discuss how to manage Petra. Hello, I'm Dr. Mina Bonsal. In this episode, I will discuss how to manage MASH in individuals with type 2 diabetes. Now remember Petra. She's a 64-year-old woman who presents with fatigue and malaise. She's had type 2 diabetes for about 20 years with associated dyslipidemia and hypertension. And her FIB4 score was 2.74. So she has a high risk of fibrosis and cirrhosis. So in addition to referring her to a hepatologist, um, there are many things that we need to take into account when we are managing the diabetes in patients with MASLD and MASH. So a general overall goal is to optimize glycemic control using preferred agents that may have benefit in steatohepatitis, such as the GLP-1 receptor agonists, or SGL-2s, which have shown benefit in both cardiovascular disease risk as well as CKD. So the preferred agents are either GLP-1 receptor antagonists or SGL-2 inhibitors. 
In terms of dietary recommendations, we really recommend a Mediterranean-style diet, which is heavy in vegetables, legumes, and fruits, very little processed carbohydrates, and lean proteins such as fish and chicken. Now, you also want to individualize based on the A1C target, um, striving for less than 6.5% in persons without concurrent serious illness. And advanced cirrhosis caution should be, uh, should be used in those who may have risk of hypoglycemia with oral agents. Now, just to reiterate, the preferred diabetes pharmacotherapy in patients with MASLD and MASH should take into account the fact that some have some potential efficacy for MASH resolution. Both pioglitazone and the GLP-1 receptor agonists have been shown to improve steatohepatitis, though they have not shown an impact in fibrosis. There is currently no evidence that SGL-2 inhibitors improve steatohepatitis. And there is no evidence for any of these agents once patients develop cirrhosis. In terms of other diabetes medications, those should be, these, those can be continued and be considered really on an individual basis. Now, what should we do for Petra? I think all patients would benefit from a referral to a dietitian and a comprehensive weight loss program, as that is central to the management of both diabetes and MASLD and MASH. As mentioned earlier, Petra is high risk for liver fibrosis, and therefore she should be referred for hepatology to be considered for liver-directed treatments. And given her comorbid conditions, including hypertension, dyslipidemia, and their inherent cardiovascular risks, as well as her BMI of 32, we can consider initiation of a GLP-1 receptor agonist in place of our current sulfonylurea to help with her weight loss, her glucose control, and reduction in cardiovascular risk. Thank you for watching, and please join us for the next episode. Hello, I'm Dr. Mina Bunzel. In this episode, I will discuss how to recognize MASH in individuals with obesity. So let's meet Bill. He's a new male patient who comes in for an annual checkup. He has no major complaints, and he's currently on no medications. He reports drinking about seven units of alcohol per week, he doesn't smoke, and he has no family history of cardiovascular disease or obesity. His BMI is 32, so he does have class one obesity. He also has an elevated waist circumference, which can be a more sensitive measure of visceral adiposity or having or uh, fat deposition in the liver. He's got mildly elevated blood pressure at 138 over 86. His labs are otherwise okay. His cholesterol is 210. His triglycerides are 174. His HDL is 31, and his LDL cholesterol is 144. Of note, he does have mildly abnormal liver enzymes with an ALT of 54 and an AST of 44. So recognizing that we want to be screening him both for cardiovascular disease as well as liver fibrosis, we calculate his ACCVD risk score, which is 2.8% or low risk, 
And we calculate his FIB4 score, which is 1.09, also low risk. So what could be our current recommendations for Bill? He doesn't meet, at least based on the criteria we have, indications for statin, but certainly with class one obesity, we're going to want to engage in some kind of weight loss intervention. So Bill took his weight loss journey very seriously, increased his cardiovascular exercise, increased resistance training, and re returned six months in follow-up. He decreased his alcohol consumption to three units per week. His BMI is now down to 29.7, still overweight, but no longer in the obese category. He's also decreased his waist circumference. He's now normotensive. His hemoglobin A1C has decreased. His cholesterol, triglycerides, and LDL have all gone down, and his HDL increased. Importantly, his AST and ALT have also decreased. Now, I had mentioned in a previous episode that the normal range for women is considered uh, less than 25 for AST and ALT. And for men, we really think about 30, 35. So he's now coming into what we would truly consider more of a normal range. We recalculate his ACCVD risk score, which is now down to 1.6% and his FIB4 score, which remains 0.94 or low risk. So we tell Bill to keep doing what he's doing. There's no need for additional intervention at this time, and we'll see him next year for his annual checkup. Thank you for watching. Join us at the next episode where we will follow Bill five years later. Now remember Bill, we saw him five years ago and he was doing great, lost weight, um, but now he's undergone some personal issues and he returns to the clinic after being lost to follow up. He's gained 22 kilograms since his last visit. He's increased his alcohol intake to 10 units per week, but still does not smoke. His BMI has increased. Now he has class two obesity. His waist circumference has increased. His blood pressure has increased. He now has prediabetes um, and his platelet count has dropped. His cholesterol, his triglycerides and his LDL have all increased. His HDL has decreased and his AST and ALT have all increased. So in addition to making sure he doesn't have any other causes of liver disease, such as hepatitis B and C, we're going to again calculate his ACCVD risk score, which is now increased to 6.2%, which doesn't quite, based on what we have, meet criteria for automatic statin usage, but, um, but needs to be monitored closely. Recalculating his FIB4 score now puts him at a 2.05 or the indeterminate risk. So how would we manage Bill? Well, because his FIB4 is now in the indeterminate zone, we need a secondary assessment of liver fibrosis. If liver stiffness measurements are available, either VCTE or shear wave elastography, that can be done, or if not, ELF testing. If his liver stiffness measurement is greater than eight or his ELF test is greater than 9.8, he should be referred to hepatology. But in the meantime, there are a number of things 
that you as their primary care doctor can do to manage and help Bill. First, obviously we have to get back to decreasing his sedentary lifestyle and increasing daily movement. We wanna shoot for at least 30 to 60 minutes of aerobic exercise three to five days per week, as well as resistance training 20 to 30 minutes at least two to three times per week. Now the resistance training is important because sarcopenia or low muscle mass is associated with poor outcomes as well as insulin resistance. And therefore by engaging in resistance training, he can improve his insulin resistance. As mentioned before, we want to re-emphasize the importance of a Mediterranean-style diet rich in vegetables, fruits, legumes, low in fat and processed foods, and now he must minimize his alcohol intake. Since he has evidence of increasing fibrosis, it's paramount to advise him to avoid alcohol. Now, in terms of weight loss goal, we, we want to use agents that not only cause weight loss, but also have been shown to improve NASH or cause NASH resolution, such as GLP-1 receptor agonists. If, if he is interested, he could be considered for bariatric surgery, but I think given the fact that he did well previously with lifestyle modification, and perhaps there are just some personal issues and we just need to reiterate our goals of care, that's something to think about, um, but may not necessarily be necessary at the, at the immediate moment. Um, in addition to semaglutide, which has been shown to be associated with NASH resolution, the other weight loss drug that was recently approved was all is trizepatide. Now, it has not yet been shown to improve NASH resolution. However, it is now approved for weight loss and can be considered in someone like Bill. Thank you for watching. Join us next episode where I'll present a less common case of lean individual with MASH. Hello, I'm Dr. Mina Bonsal. In this episode, I will discuss how to recognize MASH in lean individuals. So let's meet Anika. She's a 42-year-old Asian woman with no past medical history. She visits your clinic for routine checkup. Her BMI is almost 25. Her waist circumference is 80, she has a normal blood count, her platelets are 200, her ALT is 60, and her AST is 48. So a couple things to take note of. One, the BMI cutoffs in Asians is actually lower than in the white population. And so overweight in the Asian population is considered a BMI greater than 23. So technically, Anika is overweight. Moreover, she has abnormal liver enzymes with an ALT of 60 and 48. So what do we want to do next? We order an ultrasound, which shows some evidence of hepatic steatosis. As we said, her AST and ALT are abnormal. So the most important first thing to do 
is rule out other liver diseases, whether that be viral hepatitis, such as hepatitis B and C, which are now recommended as universal screening, irrespective of abnormal liver enzymes, autoimmune hepatitis. We also want to consider alternative diagnosis like Wilson's disease, which can masquerade as MASH, as well as celiac disease. If all of those are normal, we have a patient who has evidence of steatosis and abnormal liver enzymes, making the diagnosis of lean D likely. So the next important thing is an overall cardiometabolic risk factor assessment. Even though patients are lean, often patients with lean D do have evidence of insulin resistance if you use very technical methods to diagnose that. So we want aggressive risk factor modification. And now, the, as we discussed earlier, the most important thing in D is fibrosis. So we want to do our FIB4 score as our first line assessment for significant liver fibrosis. Now, in Anika's case, when we calculate our FIB4 score, it's 1.63. And therefore, she falls into that intermediate or gray zone, requiring us to provide, pr perform a second non-invasive assessment for liver fibrosis. And depending what's available to you, that could either be the blood-based ELF test or transient elastography. Based on that, if she is low risk, she can be continued managed in primary care. However, if she's high risk, as defined as an ELF greater than 9.8, or elastography greater than 8.6, she should be referred to hepatology for further assessment. Thank you for watching. Join us at the next and last episode where I will discuss how to manage lean individuals diagnosed with MASH. Hello, I'm Dr. Mina Bonsal. In this seventh and last episode, I will discuss how to manage Anika, a lean Asian individual diagnosed with MASH. So to remember, Anika has a mildly elevated BMI, ALT of 60, AST of 48, and when we did our fibrosis risk assessment, she had a FIB4 score of 1.63. So based on our algorithm, she falls into the intermediate zone. If she had had a FIB4 less than 1.3, she would have a low risk of significant fibrosis, and we would recommend weight loss of three to 5%. So even in lean patients with MASLD, there is benefit to weight loss and exercise. And then would reassess her in a couple of years by doing an, another FIB4 evaluation. Now in Anika's case, she had an intermediate FIB4 score. So we must perform a secondary assessment of liver fibrosis, and depending what is available to you, that could be an ELF or VCTE. If her ELF is less than 9.8 or her VCTE is less than 8.6, then again, weight loss of 3 to 5% exercise and reassessment in one to two years. However, if she had a high risk ELF score greater than 9.8 or a VCT greater than 8.6, she would be referred to hepatology. From a hepatology perspective, we may do some additional scoring to identify those with at-risk NASH, which is considered those who have 
at least a NAS score of greater than or equal to four. So it's really a reflection of inflammation and injury or steatohepatitis in addition to fibrosis. Those risk scores include things such as the FAST score, MAS score, or MRE. And then patients are divided into either low risk where they may be re-referred back to primary care or confirmed high risk. For those who have high risk, they again, weight loss five, three to 5%, avoiding fructose, you could consider vitamin E in those who are non-diabetic or non-serotic or pioglitazone. Pioglitazone does cause some weight gain, though really it's a redistribution of fat from the visceral tissues to the peripheral adipose tissue. And therefore, those who have lean muscle D and have diabetes with no evidence of congestive heart failure or edema could be considered for pioglitazone therapy. Ideally, you wanna consider patients for clinical trials as there are no FDA approved treatments at the present time for MASH. And importantly, reassessment and monitoring disease progression over six to 12 months because it's very important to determine who is a rapid fibroser and more likely to get into trouble over a shorter course or time frame. Now, really, as I think has been clear through these micro episodes, if we really place the patient at the center of a multidisciplinary care team, the focus on weight management, nutrition, exercise, lifestyle intervention, this is critical for all patients. We really want to assess their dietary habits, um, recommending that they don't drink any soda, fructose, any processed foods, any barriers to achieving those goals, and certainly weight loss management medications in the appropriate patient population. At the same time, we need to think about the fact that the number one cause of, of death in these patients is cardiovascular disease. So aggressive management of cardiovascular risk, including lipid lowering agents such as statins. It's important to note that many of these patients will have abnormal liver enzymes at baseline, but statin therapy is recommended and not contraindicated. Um, and if they have high-risk fibrosis, as assessed by FIB4 and secondary testing, then they really need to be connected to a gastroenterologist or hepatologist where there can be additional uh, options, including referral for clinical trials, which, as I said, since there's no FDA-approved therapies, clinical trials offer an excellent opportunity for these patients. If patients have advanced fibrosis or cirrhosis, then they need to be screened for the development of esophageal varices, and they need to be enrolled in a liver cancer screening protocol, which includes ultrasound and alpha-fetoprotein every six months. Thank you for joining us. I hope that you found these micro episodes helpful and useful for your clinical practice. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.